Hello everyone. So as promised, uh, we have Chris with us today. Chris with us today is going to talk to us about horror. So first of all, let me clarify. I made a mistake in the post. I said he writes horror. No, he understands horror. <laughs> Luckily, that's what we are going to talk about. So it works out. Uh, take it long, Chris. Introduce yourself. All of that. Yeah. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Chris Angelis. I am a writer, not a horror uh, writer, although I should mention that uh, I have written some genre fiction, uh, including horror, uh, using a pen name. But uh, my main authorial interest is situated in literary fiction. And perhaps we could also wonder, is reality scarier than fiction sometimes? But that's a talk for another day, maybe. Uh, but yeah, I'm a writer, uh, a coder, an editor, and uh, have a PhD in English literature. And my research interests uh, revolve around gothic horror, science fiction, these kinds of uh, non-realist fiction. And I actually uh, wrote my doctoral dissertation on uh, Frankenstein and Dracula. So I've had my fair share of uh, this kind of classic gothic works. Okay, so we are going to talk about Dracula because I, I, I was so fascinated that I think Vlad the Impaler, right? He is what was converted into like mm. Dracula. Yeah, that's so true. We often forget that when, when we think about something like Dracula, we're like, okay, blood sucking vampire. But if this was an actual person who did atrocious crimes and because of how literature kind of romanticized them as time went on, from something awful to something sparkly. <laughs> so uh, it's 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 fascinating what begins as horror kind of you know pushes down as time goes by. So yeah, that's probably something we can pick up on later on. So the thing about horror that I noticed after your comment was uncanniness. Mm. We find fear from that which is uncanny. And why do you think that is? I mean, of course, Freud has a gigantic explanation for that. But from a writer's perspective, why do you think that is what creates this horror-esque uh, landscape in the first place? Yeah, well, if we uh, see things on many levels, shall we say, on the superficial level, uh, the way horror works is that um, it allows us, like all literature, to vicariously experience something that we don't want to experience in real life. I would expect most people not wanting to be chased by a vampire, for example, or any other monster. Uh, so on the superficial level, any kind of uh, story that scares us, like gothic or horror fiction, allows us to experience something and perhaps understand how it would feel like. Now, if we go on a deeper, uh, into deeper levels, then we see that actually horror, uh, I keep talking about horror and gothic, and they are two separate things really, but we can come back to this in a while. But the way these kind of fictions operate are uh, on a more subconscious level, meaning that if on the first, on the superficial level, we have how would it feel to be chased by a vampire, for example, then on a more subconscious level, we would uh, ask ourselves, are they really vampires or am I seeing things? Have I gone insane? Why is this thing here? it shouldn't exist. So operating on the subconscious, this kind of uh, uh, narratives force us to re-establish uh, our bearings regarding reality. Um, 
Now, this can happen both directly and indirectly. Directly, for obvious reasons. If I was taught that there are no supernatural beings and I'm seeing one, are there after all vampires? Are there after all monsters? But indirectly also by forcing us to wonder whether we have gone insane, for example, which is a very uh, usual trope in, in Gothic fiction. It once again uh, destabilizes our sense of reality, our sense of connection to our uh, environment, our world. Uh, yeah. How do we know whether uh, this being is uh, human or uh, a vampire or whatever other uh, monster? And then, of course, now this is where things get interesting because we can start going into even deeper levels in which we start seeing this kind of um, uh, fear and questioning and doubt as kind of fascinating. That, hey, hang on, if reality is not as we thought it was, perhaps some other things that I thought were not possible are actually possible. To put it this way, to use the same example, why do I find the vampire so attractive? Why am I fascinated by this being? And this is, again, a trope that we see very often in, in uh, such fictions. If we think, for example, interview with a vampire, there are many characters who want to be turned into vampires. Now, why would you want to do that? And this is a recurrent theme and question in, in this fiction. So, historically, uh, the Gothic and horror later kind of plays on this idea of uh, things not being as they are, that there is a lot of depth under the surface. And this kind of fictions also operate symbolically, uh, like uh, for example, when Dracula uh, was published in 1897, there were many critics that uh, said that it gave them, basically it gave them the creeps, it made them feel very uncomfortable, but crucially, they said they weren't sure why it made them feel uncomfortable, and they also added that they weren't sure the author, Bram Stoker, was sure either. So these kind of fictions make us feel uncomfortable for in ways we don't understand. And this is where uh, the uncanny that you mentioned enters the picture. Because the uncanny in the end, and that was Freud's entire uh, thesis, is that it's not really something which is unknown, it's something that is repressed, meaning it's something that we should know, but for one reason or another, consciously, we either pretend we don't know or we have forgotten or whatever. And there's all kinds of discussion we can have about how Gothic fiction and horror fiction allude to all kinds of ideas such as um, uh, repressed sexuality or um, social issues or gender issues. I mean, Dracula on the surface is a story about blood-sucking monsters, but underneath that there, is, uh, there are issues pertaining to the women's position in late 19th century Britain, uh, sexuality, uh, social, imperial anxieties, all kinds of things. So. It's a never-ending topic, basically, but that's also what makes it fascinating. Yeah, and that's why I have Freud's quote written down over here. The uncanny is that class of the terrifying that leads back to something uh, long unknown to us, which was once very familiar. So I think that is it. Somewhere deep down there, there is something we are trying to express or understand. But due to whatever circumstances we are put in, that probably prevents us from expressing that. So this creating horror is how we go about it. And I've actually been working on an article for a while uh, where I'm, I'm looking at where Indian horror myths began. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. So we have the Chudel and the Dayan. This is a group of women who were horrifyingly wronged by people in society. Like they were given given gruesome deaths. So what they did, what happened was, Goddess Kali shined her grace on them, and she's like, "I'll let you have your revenge. Now you are a blood-sucking monster, so to speak." So the Chudel and the Dayan, in their respective techniques, will come and haunt people and kill them. but they only go behind people that are bad they mm-hmm. won't come after you if you are inherently good so i think i think the root of this myth was as you mentioned the position of women in britain i think that was coming from the position of women in india as well mm-hmm. because we had so much freedom then under colonization freedom has disappeared and all of these stories coming from the 18th century when yeah. we were colonized so it's as if we want to protect ourselves but we can't let us start this little rumor about women that walk walk on back legs and come and eat you to death you know <laughs> so so I, i i think inherently everyone knows you should not be cruel and awful to the fellow man and the woman however because of the dystopian nature of the human psyche i don't know how to define it Uh, we do we do end up doing these things and i think out of this is where we get horror gore all of these yeah that is yeah. A, that is a very interesting uh, very interesting thing to mention and uh, actually since uh, um, we started on that i could also mention mary shelley again who wrote frankenstein uh, quite often uh, people because uh, for those who aren't aware Mary Shelley had really uh, bad luck in her life all her children died basically her husband uh, died all kinds of horrors and many people many critics uh, tend to see some sort of uh, connection between her literary production and her own life missing the bigger picture which is that all women's lives were like that in those mm. days so yeah. uh, and this is an important thing to remember because it's really directly related to how the gothic and horror uh, operate which is that they offer a reflection of society in a given context meaning that traditionally uh, gothic works reflected a reality a social reality that was too um, too daring to outside the the confines of what was considered proper to be expressed so it was used as a method to express certain truths if you like that were impossible to express any other way so the gothic and uh, horror as well uh, and pretty soon i should probably define their differences uh, gothic yeah. and horror uh, are um, ways to express the inexpressible they are mediums that allow the author and us all the readers the audience Uh, to understand certain things that cannot be spoken directly and uh, perhaps that is also one reason why freud hit the proverbial nail on the head with uh, his talk about repression and the uncanny and all that mm. so he he was onto something <laughs> yeah that's that's one book that people should definitely read if you are into non fiction psychoanalysis stuff because It, mm-hmm. it, it, uh, you know like uh, reading murakami kind of puts you in that stage of oh why am i alive mm-hmm. and then you read freud and it's like a whole other level of oh why am i like this so yeah that is that is something that uh, that that 
coming to the thing that you were talking about i just remembered something else so during the dot com bubble japan was one of the countries that was experiencing this boom of prosperity and they were being kind of bombarded not just with western culture but also with like uh, technology mm. and when you take a very traditional society and then you like you know uh, give them lots of technology that's when j horror kind of picks up joon okay. yeah joon then uh, there's this is movie not even kidding it's called suicide club and uh, it's very controversial of course because of the topic and the movie begins like this you receive an email uh and you go to a website and everyone who sees that website kind of commits suicide together okay. and this is also the time when suicide rates started skyrocketing in japan so like yeah. six seven odd months later they have this movie come out you have fear of technology combined with you know fear of the young giving up so quickly turned into this controversial shit that uh, hits you because when you see young people receive a website and then kill themselves mm. it's scary oh, yeah, just like ringu right like the you watch that uh, vcr go in seven days later it's going to drag you into the tv screen yeah so so it i think i think what you said makes sense we inherently we don't want to change and then when society kind of progresses so much faster than the culture which is what we've been experiencing since the industrial revolution uh i think that is where we see so much horror kind of step in the play with uh, machines that go crazy with scientific experiments that turn on you with uh, viruses that escape laboratories mm. with uh, you know with uh, with with with, with So, so much of that which is real but we don't want to talk about it so we're going to create this fictional universe about it and like go to town on it yeah it's like we try to make sense of reality with uh, mm-hmm. with a fiction yeah yeah yeah. Mm. yeah yeah at this point yeah. want i could also talk a bit about the differences between gothic and horror because this is always a very tricky subject so uh, i think we should get it out of the way that yeah, uh, First of all, generally speaking, genre is an entirely artificial product. I think we should keep that in mind. When we talk about uh, detective fiction or romance fiction or crime fiction, all these are basically labels that we artificially put in order to be able to, uh, as audience, better understand what the work is about and um, as uh, marketers or publishers better channel these books for the, the, the proper, shall we say, audience. Uh, now, with a gothic and horror, things are even more complicated because precisely these are ambiguous works, meaning that if you ask 10 uh, scholars of the gothic, how do you define the gothic, you're going to get 10 different opinions. And none of them are wrong. Like, they can all be right. But uh, the way to describe, to define the gothic and horror is uh, descriptive rather than prescriptive. You can't say, that is the gothic genre and that's it. You can say what it looks like, what it feels like, how how it works even, but it's not uh, it, it it can't be an exclusive list in a way. Not definitely not to the extent that for example romance fiction is because romance fiction more or less okay it's fairly fairly straightforward you can say it should be like this like this like that and that's it. 
but the Gothic, precisely because it's uh, predicated on ambiguity, uh, it eludes definition, basically. So, with that in mind, um, the Gothic could be seen as a mode, rather, as a genre, and by that I mean that uh, mm, there is a continuum, a kind of grey area, whether uh, a work is Gothic or not. In more traditional sense, the Gothic was a series of texts that uh, emerged in the late 18th century in Britain, and they all had some common things, uh, for example, castles, settings uh, that were decayed and old, and uh, there was usually some uh, damsel in distress involved, and uh, her family had wronged her, there was some dark figure that was persecuting her, and these kind of things. But as the years passed, and in the Victorian period, the Gothic evolved and became more of uh, this kind of, um, how to put it, uh, it acquired elements of the grotesque as a concept. Mm -hmm. And the concept of the grotesque uh, refers to something that should not exist, basically. Oh, I never thought of it this way. Yeah. And, and, and this is why we define the grotesque as, you know, something that is ugly, something that is mis that, that's probably rooted in biases based on appearances. Uh, that it is true. That Ooh. is true. But it's also interesting to note that the grotesque, the concept of the grotesque itself, underwent a shift during the 19th century. Because before that, the grotesque was seen uh, in its comical aspect. Ah, the buffoon who is uh, disfigured, uh, the wretch or whatever. But then in the Victorian era, uh, the grotesque started to acquire more menacing, more darker aspects. And uh, what is interesting now is that this tradition has remained. If you see, for example, Stephen King's It or uh, uh, Clowns or things like that, they are both funny and scary at the same time. And it's, and it's precisely this kind of imbalance, this kind of incongruity between these aspects that also boosts this kind of feeling of feel, uh, being uncomfortable. Uh, now, back to the Gothic. The Gothic can be seen, therefore, as a mode very wide area of texts that are predicated on ambiguity, um, s portraying something that shouldn't exist, making you feel uncomfortable, and uh, all these kind of elements. And it's important to note that there is the idea of the supernatural there, but there is a crucial difference. And this is entirely my own uh, thesis. Other scholars might have different definitions, but uh, in my opinion, this is something worth looking into. Uh, the way the concept, the um, idea of the supernatural is defined is also what separates these works. Now, in the Gothic, ambiguity is the key, meaning that you can't really say, are there vampires or am I insane? Uh, are these really supernatural creatures or have they existed since all uh, times? Uh, is Frankenstein, there's a question open to everyone, is Frankenstein uh, science fiction or a gothic work or horror? Because it depends on whether you think that Frankenstein's creature is created with scientific means or not, right? So all these aspects go back to how we define the supernatural. So in the gothic uh, proper, shall we say, the idea is that you suspend belief, that you are um, not unable to say whether something is supernatural or not. And ideally, if the author is skillful, uh, you should never resolve this predicament. It should be left open-ended and ambiguous. 
Now, when we go to horror, which is a bit uh, chronologically later uh, mode or genre, if you prefer, in horror, things are much more straightforward in that there is supernatural involved and there is no really much ambiguity about it. There are monsters, there are aliens, there are whatever you want to call it. Uh, at this point, let's mention fantasy, and you mentioned Murakami a while ago, so magical realism fall into that. The separating line then between horror or supernatural in horror fiction and supernatural in fantasy is this. In fantasy, supernatural is not treated as supernatural. If you think of Lord of the Rings, for example, okay, there are orcs, there's nothing special oh about God. it. Cool. <laughs> uh, there are orcs, there are unicorns, whatever, there are dwarves, uh, there is no nothing special. This is how the world is. It, mm. it is from the reader's perspective or the audience's perspective supernatural, but within the, the universe of the, of the work, it's not treated as supernatural. This mm. is important because this removes uh, the fear that we feel. So uh, the reason Lord of the Rings doesn't scare us is because within the universe of Lord of the Rings, things are not supernatural. I mean, of course, orbs are ugly and um, disfigured and we don't like watching them, but the causes disgust, which is a different thing. They don't cause us fear because they don't make us question our reality. We kind of like participate in this kind of conspiracy that, yeah, this is all make-believe. Yeah, they don't see it as supernatural and so on and so forth. But in horror fiction, if you think of, uh, I don't know, uh, The Exorcist, for example, then you really come face to face with something that shouldn't exist, that has uh, literally invaded our reality. It has invaded the reality the way we defined it. And this kind of discrepancy really makes us feel scared and uncomfortable. And again, magical realism is a bit the same as fantasy, because although, again, we have uh, supernatural elements invading our reality, they're not really treated as supernatural. I mean, in Murakami, there are fish falling from the sky and uh, uh, small men talking, no stuff like that. Yeah. But characters are basically, oh, what do you know? There is fish raining from the sky, but but it's not really treated as something miraculous and phantasmagorical. And definitely it's not, not explained. It is not explained. There is this, or there is this, as you said, when you explain something, you acknowledge it, right? Mm. As in, I acknowledge that there is this thing that is happening and it's probably bad, good, whatever you want to call it. Which is what they don't do in fantasy. They're like, ah, this is there. Yeah. This is there. Do what you want with it. It's up to you. And people, people love the orcs. People, people love smog, right? People love all these technically scary things mm. just because we haven't been given an explanation of where do they come from or what it was that brought them into existence. And I think that's, that's the thing with almost every, uh, scary story, uh, every supernaturally scary element that is introduced into movies and TV shows and books, mm. there is an origin story. Like they show us something which made them like this or some activity pushed them into this direction. Or in some cases, they were inherently evil and were punished by something else. So this explanation is offered to us and we are actually looking. When we watch a movie like The Exorcist, we wonder, oh, like, how did this one become a ghost or a spirit in the first place? Yeah. And if that story isn't offered to us, we're like, yeah, it's a spirit. 
mm-hmm. nothing scary about that those are everywhere however because they show us this this uh how to call this this kind of awful back story Mm-hmm. we are going to probably think oh there's no way this one is going to be nice to us <laughs> so carry stay away yeah that's this this is actually invasion i think invasion is the key word uh, because when something invades your life it becomes horror when something exists it's fantasy basically so, yeah that's one way of putting it yeah and uh, it's I actually It's actually interesting that uh, since I mentioned Lord of the Rings, Tolkien himself had said, and I have pulled up the quote here, he said that, um, and I'm quoting, the definition of a fairy story, what it is or what it should be, does not then depend on any definition or historical account of elf or fairy, but upon the nature of fairy. And then he goes on to say, I will not attempt to define that, nor to describe it directly. It cannot be done. Fairy cannot be caught in a net of words, for it is one of its qualities to be indescribable, though not imperceptible. It has many ingredients, but analysis will not necessarily discover the secret of the whole. So in fantasy, basically, we have a process in which you as a reader or viewer, you are forced to accept it, that this is how it is. And if you don't accept it, you can't make sense of the story. Like, don't go after finding out why there are orcs. There are orcs, and it's a, it's a done deal. Yes. Whereas in horror and gothic, we have the exact opposite scenario, that the reader directly or more skillfully, indirectly and subconsciously is asked to wonder, how is this possible? How, how can we see a ghost here if there are no ghosts? I mean, it's like that uh, old funny um, uh, quote, that uh, do you believe in ghosts no of course not but i'm still afraid of them <laughs> so it's the same yeah. thing here <laughs> so i i i i am i'm often given this uh, you know this kind of drama from family because i'm 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 atheist like i don't do the religious stuff uh, but i help them out and they're like uh, you 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 are not really religious but then you don't go in that uh, you know scary house so you don't go around that tree in which all these spirits hang out. I'm like, okay, I, I, I am an atheist, but I'm not willing to die for it. <laughs> if these things exist, <laughs> you know, what if one of them takes me away? I don't want to be taken away by something like this. I think this is it. I think this is, this is, this is the power of good storytelling. Uh, even if there are things that go very, like uh, go extremely against your beliefs, because of the perception around these things, you're going to be like, no, I don't want to go in that haunted house. You can't yeah. pay me enough money to go in there. Yeah. It's actually interesting that uh, I think there was a comment uh, on your uh, LinkedIn status update with someone mentioning true stories or what if uh, like suddenly a horror or a gothic story is a true story. And uh, I was thinking co- about commenting on that, but then I thought I could just mention it uh, on the live that uh, actually this is a really old trope in gothic fiction that based on a true story that we often see in movies nowadays that uh, the, based on true events or based in a true on a true story. This is a very old gothic trope it's called the discover manuscript in which the the, the story supposedly uh, is true is real and the author uh, discovered it in the manuscript in some attic or some uh, forgotten chest or something like that and the reason this works is that um, it plays precisely with our perception of reality the way you mentioned before 
we don't really believe in ghosts, but you never know. So when we come face to face with this kind of discovered manuscript or based on a true story, this really destabilizes our reality because a true horror story, a true supernatural story shouldn't exist, right? I mean, how can it be true and be supernatural at the same time? It's a paradox. So the way this is used is to further, uh, on a subconscious level, destabilize our reality and make us feel even more scarce. I mean, if you took a story like The Exorcist that I mentioned, when people see based on the true events, that completely freaks them out. They don't, of course, go searching, okay, in which way based on true events, just because someone said or whatever, or you know, how how did this happen? But just this little phrase alone is enough to like scare the, the living daylight out of people. So it, it really plays on how these kind of fictions um, mess with our head, mess with our perception of reality by forcing us into a very paradoxical position. And uh, this is, I think, what fascinated me in the first place in, in researching uh, the Gothic, because it's, it operates on a very sophisticated level of uh, disrupting our perception of the world. And that's also the reason why the Gothic historically and, and even nowadays too, uh, is used to describe some very wide societal, even existential matters, who we are, how do we see each other, is there life after death or whatever, this kind of thing. There's this movie that comes to my mind, I think it has, it is one of the best horror movies I've watched, it's a 2014 movie called The Babadook and uh, in without doing any spoilers, this movie has this single mother and her son who is very clearly autistic okay and uh, she is struggling to raise him and there is some trauma in their past and now there is this book which has the Baba Dook in it and this mother feels as if she is being haunted mm. and then simultaneously they are showing us she is overwhelmed, she is not sleeping, she doesn't have a support system. You know we are, we are being given these parallels. Yeah. Is it a horror story? Is it a psychological issue? You don't know. Is it under unresolved trauma? And I think that is why based on everything that you've said so far, I think that that movie is done really well. I'm going to go back to it and watch it again because as we're talking, I'm, I'm seeing this done so skillfully, like I didn't even realize it while watching the movie that, oh, I'm seeing somebody experiencing severe burnout and not someone who's being haunted mm. by some ghost. Yeah, it's uh, as I mentioned earlier, Gothic works uh, very traditional, very characteristically operate on this kind of level that uh, it's like there are three or four multiple stories uh, unfolding at the same time. I mean, Dracula is on the surface a novel about uh, supernatural creatures, vampires who want to conquer England or whatever. But then you start to wonder, okay, hang on, is there any connection between this and imperial anxieties? Because at the end of the 19th century, it was when Britain started realizing that, okay, we've been colonizing the globe for the past two centuries, but now things have started to unravel and we are the haunted ones. And mm. the, Dracula was not the only text to point this out. There's a whole category uh, called the imperial Gothic in which, uh, basically the british explorers come face to face with demonic powers that threaten to colonize england to go back to england and turn everyone into ghosts or vampires or whatever all this very obviously 
place that anxiety is related to uh, the colonization process and the imperial expansion of, uh, of Britain. And then on other levels, uh, there is a class issue involved. I mean, you have this uh, in Dracula, this uh, middle class heroes, basically, that use modern technology. I mean, uh, they have like uh, phonographs and uh, cameras and these kind of things. And then in the end of the, at the end of the novel, they have to resort to hypnotism to conquer, to uh, vanquish Dracula. So there is this kind of regression at play, this kind of idea that uh, is this how modernity is supposed to look like? Uh, so there are so many things to find connections to in the Gothic that uh, I, I would say most of them are actually subconsciously written even. Like uh, it's a, tr a characteristic of Gothic fiction that the text escapes the control of their author, meaning that uh, I'm, I'm willing to bet Bram Stoker didn't intend half the things that uh, we can discover in his work. But the reason they are there and they're so effective to boot is that they were a subconscious product of his time. So they entered his, uh, his literary production subconsciously. He didn't intend them, but they somehow found a way to be expressed, which I think is very powerful. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, hold on. I'll just do. Thank you so much for being with us, uh, at least in this point in time, me too. And if there's any question you have later on, just put it in the comments and uh, we'll, we'll try to answer your questions whenever you come back, if ever you come back. Thank you so much for joining us. He's been listening from the beginning. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so continuing on what you said, uh, this is something that I've often felt because uh, when I like something, I go into a creepy mode and I look up the life of the person who has written the book in the first place or the screenplay or whatever it is. And I think what you said may, makes a lot of sense because I find consciously and subconsciously writing is very autobiographical. Like if you look at Osuma Razai or Yukio Mishima or even Haruki Murakami mm. or any writer that inspires you, when you compare their actual life and the scenarios that they draw up in their books, you'll see them inter inter interlap in yeah. this, and overlap in this very, I think, subconscious way. It's, it's, it's definitely not deliberate because they obviously wanted to escape that, which is why they wrote whatever it is that they wrote. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that is why people like the reading because if I also did this weird uh, thing when I was in school because I had no friends and I had access to a gigantic library in school. I used to look up some things that I used to find interesting and the Gutenberg Press was one of the things that caught my interest in school. So I was looking up information about the Gutenberg Press and what I found was books were apparently very expensive before and even after the invention of the printing press. Mm. And the thing that made these these papers so cheap was penny dreadful. Right. Little little pages with horror stories in them, or uh, the macabre, so to speak. And there is this odd fascination that we have, I think, as humans, to not want to be told that okay, this is a problem in your society. But then we still want to talk about it. So I think horror is a way in horror and gore and even the macabre. I think that is how we express 
that we can't talk about in our point in society yeah so that is a that is a great point yeah i mean this is how how it operates and uh, actually it reminded me of something if we try to trace the origins of the gothic and uh, other kind of popular fiction there's a reason they're called popular fiction uh, mm-hmm. there is something that might interest some people uh, there's um, this russian literary critic mikhail bakhtin who has talked about uh, uh, mikhail bakhtin okay, okay. I can send you the wait. Just found him. Found him. Okay. Yes, and he has uh, analyzed uh, extensively this kind of what I call proto-Gothic uh, stories, which uh, uh, Rabelais and this kind of authors, which talk about festivities in the Middle Ages. So now we are three, four hundred years before the Amer- the Victorian Gothic, basically, and. The way these festivities unfolded was that uh, there was a kind of a carnivalesque aspect to them, meaning that they they involved uh, people stopping work and stop dealing with everyday life and coming together to make fun of each other and make fun of authority even. And everything that was said and done during these festivities was allowed because it was considered just make-believe and just something funny and uh, carnival and these kind of things. So that became an opportunity to talk about things that in normal circumstances you couldn't talk about, right? And this remained as part of the tradition in a sense. So in the Gothic then you could uh, either consciously or more typically subconsciously squeeze in little uh, social problems that otherwise you couldn't talk about. and. Uh, to be fair, some of these, as I said a while ago, are not uh, consciously written by their authors, but they are still a product of their historical context, of the sociocultural context. So they still allow us, they give us a glimpse of how it felt to live when this uh, story was written. And fast forward to today, of course, uh, that we see this context all around us, it allows us to make sense of why things are as they are. I mean, now, with the pandemic and everything, suddenly everyone discovered uh, uh, Albert Camus, uh, the plague, and this kind of works. Albert Camus and that movie Contagion. It didn't yeah. really, everyone was like, oh, what bullshit movie is this? And then they were like, oh, that movie was very right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, 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 I think, yeah, you're right. Uh, with, with the coronavirus on, on its own, like with COVID 19, there's so many weird theories that people are coming up with, right? Whether it's QAnon or it's uh, politicians who are so lazy that they won't look into science and they're like, yeah, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to create like a cabal that is causing the entire world to be sick so that, you know, we can buy more of them. It's ridiculous how instead of looking at the reality, most of the news media coverage and most of the discussions around the pandemic is around like such weird scenarios uh, rather than discussing the reality like influencers are having to tell people be yourself, be vulnerable instead of what people are being which is freaking the heck out and you know becoming Karens in parks and all this it's it's ridiculous right it's so ridiculous that uh, uh when when put into such situations uh logic somehow 
takes the back burner if we look at society as a whole yeah. and what what happens instead is funny stuff yeah it's a uh, actually i think this can be traced back to what we said before about the gothic like we try to see the funny side of something menacing it's grotesque in its most literal sense of the world of the world meaning that we are in the middle of a middle of a very menacing dark depressing situation threatening and still people try to see the funny side of that and it's human nature because this is what we try to do but it's also interesting if you think about it that um, we have reached a point in human history or evolution in which uh, we can't properly separate fiction from reality i mean the whole thing is very postmodern if you think about it like uh, this inundation of media stories this kind of flood of reports in real time twitter going like this like crazy and all that has literally turned us into being um actors and writers of a story at the same time like we're in the middle of all this and at the same time we participate into the literary uh, aspect of it it's it's fascinating or it would have been fascinating if it wasn't so tragic and dramatic but uh, yeah. i think in the future uh, i can envision 20 30 years from now uh, researchers and literary critics will definitely see this year as a as a providing them with a lot of material on <laughs> on how the propagation of information and societal responses operate mm -hmm. So for that, I have only one thing to say, right? Library of Alexandria. It was the place which stored the maximum knowledge in the world on account of how it was like a trade point and stuff like that. So you have all sorts of insights and all sorts of knowledge and all sorts of culture kind of getting there. And what happened to it? It burnt down. <laughs> <laughs> not because uh, not because of anything else, but I think because of human nature. Yeah. And we we assume that having information access to information all the time. This is what you know. This is why uh, Aaron Sorkin has a wonderful dialogue in Newsroom. This is how his show opens up. Like this is why liberals lose so goddamn always. And I agree. This is why liberals lose. We're so idealistic about our pursuits. Like we thought that if we give access of information to everyone, all of humanity's problems should be solved, right? And if we give open access, as in you can say anything, as long as it makes sense to you, and it's okay. This is what we assumed would lead to like a utopia. And where we are going towards is, I think, a dystopia, at least for a little bit, for one or two odd, odd years. After which maybe we might attain enlightenment. I don't know. But even the laws Timbuktu, Timbuktu used to hide books from around the world. And what happened? Their civilization was collapsed for it. Uh, when the Ottomans came into Europe, they took so many books, which Europe was actively burning away. Right? Yeah. So every time I think in history where knowledge is, is, is kind of given out, uh, we have not reacted well <laughs> as a society. So I don't, I, I don't know where, where we go from here in the future because, uh, but, but on a positive side, we, we we would have some very good horror stuff coming out, right? Because uh, 
Mm-hmm. If you look at uh, these days, there is this entirely new genre of sci-fi horror, right? Where you have the likes of Dev or uh, Ex Machina, right? These mm. these are very real possibilities. Uh, yeah. There are so many young people. Uh, Japan actually has a term for this, hikikomori, right? You there are so many young people who would rather be with a waifu pillow than be with an actual human being. That yeah. is scary. It is definitely. Actually, you have uh, used a few, shall we say, keywords now that are very interesting. You talk about utopia and dystopia and knowledge, mm-hmm. and all of these are obviously like keywords and very recurrent tropes in these fictions. And uh, knowledge, in particular, is interesting because uh, if we go back to Frankenstein, which is considered the first science fiction novel as well as the first, uh, uh, or among the first Victorian Gothic novels. Actually, another parenthesis here, although Frankenstein was written before the Victorian era, a few years before Queen Victoria ascended to the throne, it's considered, um, if not Victorian, at least post-romantic uh, novel because it anticipated the future, basically. So the way Frankenstein works as a novel, as a text, it was ahead of its time. It anticipated things that uh, wouldn't happen for a few decades. So back to the issue of knowledge, if we think of Frankenstein, this is where it all began. He became like the Victor Frankenstein became infatuated with the discovery and knowledge and scientific progress. And he didn't stop for a moment to think the repercussions of his actions. He just unleashed the creature uh, to the world and the rest is history, as they say. And this has been for good reason, a very, very uh, like dominant theme in a lot of science fiction and a lot of uh, horror works. Because it's, I don't know if it's human nature, but uh, I suppose it's definitely a paradox that you can't assess the moral aspects of a discovery until it's already discovered or invented or whatever. And that puts us in a very precarious position of uh, not being able to uh, put the genie back into the bottle, as they say. So, So when I was reading Dracula, because I'm a physics nerd as well. I love uh, reading about historical stuff as well as the science stuff related to physics. And when when that book is written, that is where society was actively going against scientists because they didn't want to make the shift from DC to AC. Mm. And uh, the medium that Franken, uh, that is used to bring Frankenstein back to life mm. is like an alternating current. Right, and I, I was like, you know, I was like, you know, you could see it. You could, you could, when you mentioned that autobiographical thing as well, you could see how subconsciously we actively try to fight certain things that are happening around us by creating, you know, these very innocent seeming descriptions about that which is around you. But I think that is a product of the society they lived in, and. It's fascinating to look at books that were written back then that are being written to this day with the context of that which is happening around us. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, Dracula is interesting because, uh, as I mentioned a while ago, is both written in and reflecting uh, anxieties of the late 19th century, also in terms of modernity, because that period it's actually funny because the way I said Frankenstein reflects things that were coming in the following decades, this is also what Dracula does. Like Dracula was also a bit ahead of its time. It kind of foresaw this kind of conflict between the accelerating modernism 
and where that leads. I think in some sense, perhaps, okay, this is a bit far-fetched, but I think in some sense, Dracula as a book anticipated World War I, basically. It anticipated the way modernity would fail because before World War I, um, there was this kind of idea that society now, European society, uh, has reached the, the peak and we are civilized and there will never be again a war in Europe. Ten years yeah. later, this is what yeah. happened. So uh, the problem in Dracula is that, um, as I said, it kind of shows how modern technology is not enough. And that is very problematic in the context of the late 19th century. Because in the end, Dracula is not vanquished because of the technological advancements, but because uh, Mina Harker is hypnotized and can see where Dracula is and they can follow him and kill him. So I think the novel, probably subconsciously, I don't think Bram Stoker at least consciously intended it to be this way, the novel anticipates um, the at least moral failure of the emerging modernism, the moral failure of technology, the moral failure of how uh, science and one plus one equals two can't get you out of every situation, uh, out of every problem. And I think this uh, is something that probably is worth remembering in our times as well. I mean, I think that it's very depressing that we live in times in which humanities, philosophy, the arts are all snubbed, they're seen as something uh, that shouldn't exist even. There have been many, like uh, in Japan, I think, what was 25 universities shut down their humanities departments, these kind of things. Uh, but I think that philosophy should really be put again uh, on the front line. Like we should reflect on how uh, our actions and our technological advancements have repercussions. And yeah. it's, it's a never ending process probably. <laughs> This is it, right? When science was given the option to send that golden disk that went out in the sky uh, to any possible civilizations that exist out there. What is embedded into the text? What is embedded into like that disk? They, they haven't really uh, explained relativity. They mm. haven't explained quantum mechanics. No, they, they are, they have songs in them. They have words of encouragement, they have very, sim very simple sentences, oh, we are human beings from Earth, you know? And I think when it comes down to it, people choose the arts only when they have to, rather than mm -hmm. pursuing it on, a, on an everyday. And it's just sad because there is this weird commercial element that I think anything that gets a commercial element gets corrupted a little bit but mm. that corruption is not as evident as it is in the arts so yeah it's sad it's so sad what you said makes so much sense because we we in india as well we have now privatized uh, everything pertaining to the arts whether it's museums whether it's uh, uh, cultural heritage sites whether it is the, the restoration documents like it's gone to private companies yeah. which have clauses in them, like if it gets destroyed, we will pay you and it will be fixed with uh, zero legal or, you know, any sort of emotional consequences. And when we see such level of nonchalance coming to the forefront, just because they want to make more money of these things. Yeah. It's, it's just 
setting it's so upsetting and and before i forget have you written anything about uh, uh, all these things that you talked about especially uh, 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 how dracula kind of predicted world war 1 and all of this have you written anything about that uh, about that i haven't written actually because it's something that uh, came on as a parenthetical remark but i have referred to in my dissertation about how both dracula and frankenstein anticipated their future but mostly i i meant it in literary terms rather than in social so, social terms uh, but um, i guess one thing with literature is that um, unlike the sciences it's not 1 plus 1 equals 2 it's not a hard science it, it's yeah. a matter of how well you can argue it so at this point uh, i if i wanted to be honest and and uh, fair to my uh, argument i should say that i haven't thought about it well enough to research it in a more comprehensive manner uh, but it's something perhaps worth exploring and worth uh, worth uh, pursuing yeah because, yeah, because as as you said it as like mm, mm, because i think i think ottoman anxiety is uh where the trope of something blood sucking began and then it just intensifies there all and along with that we see these social themes emerge as well and like yeah that's that's fascinating because like uh, you blew my mind so many times so <laughs> this because This is this is the power of good conversations, I feel. Absolutely, yeah. Things are staring at you right in the face, and you, like, and then someone points them out, and you're like, "What do you think?" Yeah, glad to hear. Is there anything else you'd like to tell us about horror, gothic, any of that? I think we have uh, covered most of it. One thing that uh, actually I could I could ask you maybe that I was thinking before our discussion began that uh, much of what I said if not virtually all is based on a very eurocentric perspective because okay the gothic works that we are taught started from Europe and much of uh, uh, secondary sources like criticism also originates from Europe. And I was wondering to which extent can we consider this kind of aspects universal? like are we being eurocentric in thinking of all the stuff i talked about as that like how how could um, an indian author see how would you approach like indian gothic for example you did mention briefly before some some works but in uh, some experiences but i think it's interesting to also think how would someone in india or south america or mongolia or wherever think of the gothic actually we have gigantic subcultures uh, we have so many like uh, ancient stories and we have so many of these modern stories pertaining to the horror and the gothic genre of course it is uh, not available in english which is why not a lot of people know about these stories uh, but these tropes these monsters that we have these supernatural elements that we have themes are very similar so dian that we the, the the dian character is very similar to the parmaki or the witches from europe so so similar these are women that could uh, that that have really really long hair long untamed hair which can move at will signifying their power mm-hmm. okay and if you cut off their hair you take the source of their power this is what what is maybe different but uh, yeah they these are women who use herbs 
and potions uh, to fix things about your life say for instance you have a illness this dian will come this she will give you something and you will be cured but in return she will take something something right. that's important or she will probably possess you take over your life or she will make you kill someone for her own nefarious purposes you know so mm. very similar to the the witch trope right. which was essentially the catholic church which did not want the pagans to exist anymore right the pagans are refusing to you know kind of go along we have a similar thing like the tribal communities to this day tribal communities don't really go into organized religion they do their own thing and that is where this dian trope originates this woman who's a healer but takes something in return right yeah we really don't want these women to come around you which is why we have these weird superstitions like when you are menstruating your hair shouldn't be open right. otherwise a dian will come and you know kind of latch on you and possess you <laughs> so i so it it we we have very similar tropes uh that's very interesting yeah it, it, it is it is interesting and it's mind boggling that so separated by so much distance and so much uh, so very different societies we somehow came to the same story yeah <laughs> yeah that's fascinating we to be shitty to each other <laughs> in similar ways on both continents yeah it's and like people have uh, tapped into a collective unconscious of some sort ah yes that that is also like an another a uh, very like uh, distort not distortion but very kind of scary premise Yeah. Uh, and i've been uh, doing that on clubhouse uh, i go to conspiracy theory rooms and just listen in because some of these people are so should i i don't think i should say this but nutty they are so nutty but uh, you know because because at the end of the day if you don't try to understand the psyche of somebody judging them becomes that much simpler so mm. given everything that has been going on these days I am sort of pissed at conspiracy theories because I have a few of those in my family also, and I'm like, why, why, why do you have to hate people just on a conspiracy theory? You know, so I, I, I was attempting, and I am attempting to understand their psychology. And when you go to these rooms, one very common theme that I found out is people think that there is some force, whether it is a parallel universe or whether it is a, a some common subconscious something very ancient uh, agartha gets brought up a lot atlantis gets brought up a lot uh, some common subconscious that is in a way making us do same things all over the world and i think that is that is a very scary and yet somehow a very comforting thought because it's like oh everything that is happening it's not our fault it is the fault of whoever it is that is controlling us Yeah, you have now made a very interesting point because in if you think about it this is how much of modern society works in terms of uh, religion or political affiliation the reason people don't want to be independent is because it's too it requires too much responsibility like uh, the reason people are controlled either by religious forces or political forces or uh, other kind of forces such as the ones you mentioned is because it allows them to uh, shed responsibility they no longer have to think what is right and what is wrong 
and they no longer have to think what is true and what is not. Someone tells them how it is and they follow it. And that is the tragedy of uh, much of our modern world, basically, if you think about it. But uh, mm. we willingly abandon knowledge, we willingly abandon responsibility because it's too complicated. And uh, that, that will not end well, I think. <laughs> Yeah, let's hope it does end well. Okay. But yeah, it won't end well because everything that we see about our society, it's like, what's happening? Of course, the world is getting better uh, in the sense of hunger and disease and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. But, but we're getting so much stupider in the sense that we have, we, we, we have to actively convince people uh, to take their medicines, like if we if we right. think about it, uh, if we if we look at the ancient man, which gets brought up a lot by this group of people, like uh, they used to live holistic lives. What they don't talk about is these people would die by age thirty. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so it's it's like oh, it's 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 willing. It's it, it's such such willing ignorance and. You can't even argue with them because they are not there to discuss. They are like, yeah. you are wrong, I think that I'll go away. So these are things we didn't expect would happen. But I suppose the one of the main reasons that probably happened is we are not having actual beliefs, are we? We are acquiring our beliefs from that which we read, that which we hear. Right. We're scrolling thoughts away. Like we are so busy on our phones and laptops and e-books and books and textbooks and all of this. You're not like you know, thinking about sitting back and just letting your mind wander and considering some of our thoughts and actions. We're just like, yeah, fine. I, I'll do this and I'll do that and I'll do that and I'll do that. And in that, actual beliefs will never really have time to cement in, would they? What mm -hmm. you will have is just acquired beliefs. Wherever it is you're acquiring from. Even if you are a hyper-science-focused person, uh, you completely kind of would disregard the emotional concerns of some of these people who unconsciously land into these, you know, awful theories. So yeah. easily. It's, 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 it's such a non-binary and such a like no right answers kind of a topic here. And I think that is that is the perfect breeding ground for creating good gothic fiction, isn't it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I have been also thinking these days that how will uh, the fiction of this kind will look like in 10 years, 15 years. As you mentioned, we'll probably see a lot of uh, uh, AI and computer-based uh, monsters, actually. But uh, it will also be interesting to see where ambiguity will come in the way, because uh, as I said earlier, the defining element of the Gothic is ambiguity, and the defining element of uh, horror or supernatural horror is the supernatural. And then in science fiction, it's an interesting uh, predicament because uh, we would define science fiction as a genre that although plays on Gothic uh, or uses Gothic uh, means and Gothic tropes, it uh, never says that this is fake. The very idea of science fiction is that it's scientific and factual. So it kind of forces you to understand where are the limits of uh, science, where are the limits of fact, where are the limits of uh, witchcraft. Uh, and this will be interesting, interesting things to to follow in the in the next years. That how will literature uh, evolve, if you like? 
yeah and some books have already started coming out so i i uh, like it's, it's a guilty pleasure of mine i do watch the jorogen experience and jorogen has brought on two authors already who have written about the covid 19 pandemic not non fiction fiction right so non fiction so they have brought on many people but fiction so we have two books that are probably selling a lot because you know the hype and the bro gang is buying the books yeah But, uh, so, yeah it's fascinating how people were so people are so quick to come up with scenarios around this and and as you say it's something i look forward to as well because all the book slots if you see if you see the to look out for booklets we are seeing many of these books this time mm. for march to may so it would be fascinating to see how this scenario kind of plays out in the book Yeah. Okay I I have a last question from my side which is uh, do you think that the primary anxiety point with all of these stories is where do we come from and where do we go um it's definitely a big part of it uh, as i said this kind of uh, fiction plays on our existential anxieties this is definitely important because at the end of the day who are we where are we going where we came from what is to become of us why are we here all of these kind of questions are are key uh, i think the important thing in gothic fiction and horror fiction is that um, it doesn't directly talk about this but it talks about them as i said subconsciously and that uh, is a fascinating aspect because it forces you to ask the question yourself like not only ask the question and get the answer yourself but even formulate the question because when you have a, a creature like a vampire who lives forever is that a good thing or a bad thing would we like to live forever uh, since i mentioned mary shelley while i go in frankenstein she has written a, a short story uh, called the mortal immortal in which a, a young man uh, and wisely drinks the elixir of eternal life and then he's suddenly immortal and then everyone around him starts to die his wife his friends and he's immortal and he thinks was it a, a wise thing to do after all or maybe not and then he actually comforts himself saying that well i only drank half the bottle maybe i'm only half immortal as if that makes any sense uh, so this kind of uh, fictions uh, this kind of uh, works Uh, force us to ask not only why we are here or what is to become of us but also what we want like what what is good and what is not because uh, another traditional gothic trope is immortality of course but also the curse of immortality in gothic fiction immortals are I not agree. yeah it's not a great thing to be immortal it's mostly a curse actually so this these are all very important questions existential questions and largely unanswerable but perhaps is what makes them fascinating yeah and uh, segue i said i that was the last question but what you said always no it's so fascinating segue into what you just said do you think this immortality trope is kind of trickling into science fiction also because we are seeing go ahead No this is an interesting question actually because this is something that we see in science fiction narratives recently and science at large like we have uh, 
people uh, that wonder can we upload our consciousness on a computer i don't know if you have watched the black mirror series for example I have. I have that's why that's where the question comes from. <laughs> there are many uh, episodes in which basically you have people uploading their consciousness on a computer and then Westworld. they live forever. Westworld. Have you seen Westworld? Uh, what was it again? The Westworld. Westworld. Ah yes, yes I have. Yeah. It's... That's what they are doing, right? They are uploading people into like these hosts. Yeah. So while your body dies, you live on like your consciousness lives on. Yeah. Do we really want that? You know. Do we really want that? And is it really possible? Because I think that there are a lot of uh, uh, premises left unanswered here. That what is consciousness? I mean, uh, the philosopher David Chalmers called this the hard problem of consciousness. That uh, how can we even define it? How can we like go after replicating it if we don't even understand it? If we can't even like uh, prove its existence or prove what it is? Because at the end of the day. We'll go back to Descartes, like, uh, I think, therefore I am. That's all we know. We can't be certain of anything else. It's perhaps an extremely skeptical position, but you can't disprove it either. We can't prove we are not uh, in a simulation now, for example. Indeed, actually, some philosophers have put forward the argument that there is a good chance that we are in a simulation. But that's a topic for another day. So uh, this is an interesting aspect, how, how science fiction uh, will employ and also make use of uh, of uh, this anxieties. I have to say I'm slightly pessimistic in the way we talk about these things because, again, we see the scientific side of it and not the philosophical side of it. Like, uh, as you said, do we really want to live forever if we assume that it was possible on a hard drive? What are the, the repercussions of that? Um, we don't really think very deeply about why and what would happen uh, as a result of something. We only think how to do it. And uh, I think that uh, this will create some problems down the road. The entire transhumanist movement around it, and it began on the Howard campus, mm. considered to be one of the most, uh, you know, uh, intellect, like the, the pinnacle of the intellectual community is, it's one of those places. Transhumanist yeah. movement, it's a lot of things, but one of its aspects is replace actual organs with technology. So you're going to embed, it will begin by embedding chips into your hands, wherein you can email everyone just by doing this. It will include uh, removing your eyeballs and replacing them with bionic eyes, mm. so that you can see your computers happening right here. So you see your email, you're like, okay, this is what I want to reply. Uh, you will think of your reply and then you'll do this, email will go away. Yeah. And then it just increases, like the eyes and the hands we understand, okay. But then it comes down to body function as well. Like if one heart pumps this much blood and gives us this much energy, what if there are two? What if we have a real one and a mechanical one? Yeah. That wouldn't. So it's, this is, this is a very nice premise to consider. However, there is no moral discussion happening around it. It's just the science technical stuff. And while it is very fascinating to read about, uh, the repercussions of that are very, very, very horror-esque if you ask me. Because see, if you have somebody 
from a very privileged background uh, the parents right. have a lot of money and the kid is kind of indoctrinated into this because these things are very fascinating and they try to get these services which are not offered legally so they will go the illegal route and there have been instances where kids have gone on these shady yachts mm. they have had their stolen because they wanted to be a transhuman right yeah yeah there so, are many dark uh, aspects to to all that and and we can we are not encouraged to talk about these things because they give it the name of science denial which is so weird this is not science denial this is just science discussion from a different perspective but yeah, that's the science yeah. denial we are all yeah. extremely intolerant of what the other person wants to say <laughs> yep so there you go is there anything you'd like to tell us uh, tell us about your books that would be amazing tell us uh-huh. about your lovely uh, i'm as i said i'm writing a uh, literary fiction and uh, i wonder actually if reality is scarier than than gothic <laughs> and horror sometimes but uh, yeah in my fiction uh, in in the books that i write the fiction books i i prefer uh, real life scenarios and uh, everyday situations and my focus is on showing the immense um, how immensely interesting our everyday life can be like i try to find the um, um interesting and intriguing aspects in the mundane so to speak in how everyday life people everyday uh, life situations can lead us to some incredible paths and force us into impossible dilemmas and um uh, put us in a tight spot and um, force us to to think in the end maybe <laughs> so yeah. I That's my most your blog by the way because uh-huh. uh, I have read I I firstly encountered your blog because I had made some post about intellectualism and you had left a comment saying uh, I have something to say about this take it out and I went there and I was like <laughs> yeah because as I say oh my logic logic is so difficult to counter when it is offered with nuance it's not offered as uh, as oh this is the absolute truth it is offered as this is the premise behind what i say and that i think is something you do so so well oh, and I, I, i really am a fan of your work so there oh, you should check out the blog that is linked down here and uh, i haven't read your books yet but yeah it's on my tbr list so we oh. should do that as well uh just i could mention that uh, my most my most recent book uh, came out now in october it's called the perfect gray so if you want to start from one you could start from from that okay. and yeah. it's a story of a, a woman there's a lot of symbolism involved so i think it would play to all the stuff we talked about but it's basically a story of how a woman who tries to uh, grapple with a, a past trauma meets a man who forces her to face that trauma basically and uh, i could also mention here since you gave me the opportunity that uh, all my books are available for free basically you only have to do the only thing you have to do is send me a message and ask and i'll send you a digital copy like i believe that art should be accessible so if yeah. someone can't afford to get the book from amazon for example send me a message and no problem i'll set you up <laughs> So uh, I'm gonna do. I'm gonna put you on the spot again because I love putting people on spot. I have this other thing that I do called live book reviews, and uh, I would love to review your book if you like me. 
Oh, absolutely, yes, please. I'll be fascinating. And then we will have you join on if you are willing somewhere around the same time and explain some of the things in your book because Perfect. I don't think I have explanations for what you've written because you you have this way around nuance that is really so rare in modern writers. I find that is probably very judgmental of me to say, but in modern writing, I think what is missing is nuance. So absolutely. Let's see whether your book has it too. And I'm going to pick this book up this uh, Saturday or Sunday. And we're going to do a live book review of your book soon. Absolutely, yes. That'd be, that'd be very nice to do that. I have never done this before, so I look forward to this. <laughs> Fascinating. So anything else you'd like uh, us to know, follow? Um, no, I guess we can, uh, we can leave something for next time as well. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay. I'm going to wrap up this live. If there are any questions, people uh, put those in the comments and we'll try to answer those. Uh, if they are questions worth answering, because sometimes questions come in like, where do you live? You know, <laughs> we don't bother with them. So thank you so much for joining me today. Chris. Thank you. Thank you so much for all the listeners who have come in. Like, this was such a nice opportunity, people. You could have asked questions. People oftentimes PM me going, I have done this during the live, no? Why are you asking me in my personal message? <laughs> uh, but anyway, thank you so much for joining me, Chris. Thank, thank you. you so much to all the listeners for joining in. And the live is off.